Let's all stand, please. And we're going to read from Matthew 5. We're continuing our teaching series now called Built to Last because we started this on Sunday mornings with the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount going through the Beatitudes. And the reason, if you don't remember, that we call it Built to Last is that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the, the foolish man who builds his house on sand and the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And, 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 and of course, a storm came and, and the man who built on the rock, his house stood. And as such it is with people who build their lives on the teachings of Jesus Christ, specifically these teachings that we have in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's where that title came from. Tonight we are continuing the Sermon on the Mount, and um, we're going to start with the 17th verse of Matthew 5. If you have your Bibles with you, it's the NIV version. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, now so far... In, in this teaching series, this sermon and teaching series. We've talked about Christian character. That was the Beatitudes, right? That was the character of a Christian. And, and then we've also talked about the Christian's influence in the world, the disciples' influence in the world. That's what Pastor Mark talked about last, night, uh, last week on salt and light, being salt and light. So in tonight's passage, we're going to talk about this relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the gospel and the law, and, and what we talk about tonight, we're going to divide it into two parts. The first is the first two verses, 17 and 18, which is Christ in the Old Testament. And then the next two verses, 19 and 20, are the second part, and that is the Christian or disciple and the law. So before we dig in, let's go ahead and pray one more time, if we could. Father, we just pray that we would understand your word tonight, Lord. We don't want to hear man's opinion. No one wants to hear my opinion, Lord. But God, we want to hear your word. Your word is just full of wealth, God. It is. It's full of treasure, and, 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 and it's just exciting, and it's a delight to read it and to absorb it and soak it in. Let us do that tonight. Let us become better students of the Word and people that, that, that meditate and delight in it day and night, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Please be seated. Um, so, let's start with the first part of, of this, this two-part message tonight, and that is Christ in the Old Testament. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these verses and kind of kind of break them down a little bit. Let's take the first half of that verse 17. This is what it says. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. You know, today, people are still grappling with this relationship between Jesus and Moses and the New Testament and the Old Testament. And, and I'm quite certain that even today, there are still a lot of us who are confused about this relationship between the two, between the old and the new. And um, as, as we talk about this, I want to point out something that Jesus says in the scripture. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's talking about the law or the prophets. He's talking in essence about the entire Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures that, that the Jews had at that time. That's what he's talking about, the entire Old Testament. So why does he say this? 
you know, he's just been talking about the Christian character and um, through, throughout the Beatitudes. He starts talking to disciples about how, how you're the salt of the earth and you're light of the world. And, 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 and he kind of takes this turn, and it's almost a defensive statement, isn't it? He's almost being defensive. And um, why, why would he go there to begin with? Well, I think one thing may be, if you look at the phrasing of this and, and you look at how, how Jesus just went there from his, his prior topics, it kind of implies that there were probably people there, you know, in that crowd, in that multitude at the Sermon on the Mount, who were already of this opinion that Jesus was maybe trying to either abolish the law or at least parts of it. Um, and that's why he specifically said, don't think that. Right? I mean, he heads it off. No one's said anything out loud, but he tells them, don't think that. In, in Mark, when we read Mark's gospel, you know, there's a story of Jesus' disciples, and he's going through the grain field on the Sabbath, and they're plucking heads of grain, and they're eating it because they were hungry, and then they're in the synagogue, and um, there's a man there with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and, and they're all looking at Jesus. What's he going to do? Is he going to violate the Sabbath? I mean, he... he he got ticked off at him. And bottom line is he healed the man, right? And they said at that point they attempted to find a way to kill him. And, and Mark tells that story. Mark tells that story very early in his gospel, earlier than Matthew does. Um, and, you know, we talked a few months ago, a couple months ago, that sometimes ancient biographies didn't necessarily go in chronological order. That wasn't the point of ancient biography. It was to tell the story and tell the things and, so it's perhaps possible that some of these hearers that day had already heard Jesus saying some of these things that kind of like rubbed them the wrong way and made them think, what is he, is, is he abolishing the Sabbath? Is he abolishing, um, for example, rules about food, and what you can eat and what you can't eat? Um, so perhaps Jesus is already getting a reputation at this point, this early, for interpreting the law differently from the way the Pharisees interpreted the law. That might be one aspect. I think another aspect, though, is Jesus spoke with an authority that the scribes, the teachers of the law, could not speak with. See, as, as teachers of the law, they devoted themselves to interpreting and teaching it, right? The law. The authority was not in them. The authority was in the law itself. Jesus, on the other hand, he spoke with his own authority. Yeah. Um, he often started these statements with, truly I say to you. In fact, he, he does a variation of this phrase twice in this text that, that we're studying tonight. He says that twice. So if you can imagine what you would think if I as a teacher got up here on, on Wednesday night and just started talking in those same terms. This is what I say. This is what I say. I mean, you'd be looking at me and say, Dan, I don't care what you say. What does the Bible say, right? That would naturally be your response. And as a teacher, I just don't have that kind of authority, do I? But Jesus did. In fact, Jesus was the Word incarnate. Yeah. So when he spoke with that kind of authority, which he had every right to do, he did, People likely thought he was replacing the law, superseding the law with his own teaching. So perhaps that's why Jesus said, I'm just going to, to himself, I'm just going to address this right now. He goes on. Second half of that verse, he says, 
I have not come to abolish them. He's talking about the law and the prophets. But to fulfill them. It's really important. It's really important first for us to understand and remember the attitude of Jesus to the Old Testament and that it was not one of destruction and discontinuity. You know, it's over. That wasn't it. But rather it was constructive, organic continuity. Continuity is what it was about. It was not abolition. It was fulfillment. And understanding how Jesus viewed the Old Testament should shape the way we view it as well. Okay? Now, I don't know if you're thinking here, if, if you enjoy reading the Old Testament, if you get much out of the Old Testament. I don't know what your thoughts are. I'm, I'm sure we're all in different places maybe, but I'm going to loop back around to this later. How Jesus perceived the Old Testament should influence how we perceive the Old Testament as well. Jesus had come neither to abolish the law and, and not even to endorse it, because um, you'd think that'd be the opposite, but to, not even to endorse it in, in like a legalistic way. The, the term fulfill means to fill all the way up, to fill up to being full so there's no other room for anything else to go into it. That's the kind of um, thing Jesus was doing with the Word. He was completing it. He was going to bring it to fullness. And to, to kind of grasp the implications of what that means, um, I, I want us to consider that the Old Testament has various types of teachings in it. And I just want to talk about two of those tonight. I just want to talk about two of them. One is predictive prophecy, and the other I want to talk about tonight is the law. So let's start with predictive prophecy. Much of the Old Testament looks forward to the days of the Messiah, and it either foretells Christ, Jesus, in word, or it foreshadows him in type. I think... Many of you understand what I mean by, by a type. Um, this was anticipation. I mean, Jesus fulfilled it all in the sense that what was predicted about him came to pass. And, 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 and get this, the very first words of Jesus' ministry that Mark records, the first thing he says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, is this, the time is fulfilled. Those were his first words. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And if you read through Matthew, which is really what, what we're studying tonight, if you read through Matthew, Matthew says time and time again, and I haven't counted them. I probably, probably be easy enough with your phone, right, with the Bible app to count them. But time and time again, Matthew says, this took place that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. He says that a lot. Matthew points that out, and sometimes he even says, which prophet? It was a big deal with Matthew, and he repeated it time and time again. And I think it was a big deal probably with Matthew's Jewish audience. As we talked about this summer, Matthew was um, written with a Jewish bent to it and, and to a Jewish audience. It's, so it's a recurring theme in, in Matthew, and in Luke, Luke affirms it in his post-resurrection story. Remember the story? of these two disciples, they're on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, and Jesus is, boom, all of a sudden he's just there walking with them, right? And as, as they're walking, they're, they're talking, Jesus says, well, what's going on? You know, and they're kind of downcast. He said, really, 
You don't know what's going on. Where have you been all weekend? And, and you know, they tell about how, how Jesus was, was arrested and he had his trial and he was crucified. And, and they even talked about this, this rumor that these women had seen him alive. And, and they're telling him all this. And, and what Luke explains is, or what Luke describes is, Jesus starts explaining to these two disciples, starting with Moses and the prophets, what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. He used the Old Testament, and he explained to them, you know, from the law and the prophets, all these things that were supposed to happen. And, and as they have dinner that night, he disappears, and they realize, oh, my goodness, that was Jesus. And they rush back to Jerusalem, and they go to meet the 11, the, the 11 disciples and, and the other people that were gathered there. And Jesus comes again, and it says Jesus did the same thing again with that group. In Luke 24, um, verse 44, it says this. This is, this is Jesus talking. And he says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scripture. So they got it. So they could get it too. See, all of the Old Testament, my point is, all of the Old Testament spoke of Jesus. Not just the prophets, but the law as well of Moses and the Psalms that that verse we just read from, from Luke, when he's talking to the disciples, it also says, and the Psalms, right? They all spoke of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew eleven thirteen, Jesus himself said, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And we also notice reading the scripture in Luke that it had to be fulfilled. Because what did Jesus say in that scripture? Everything must be fulfilled that was prophesied. It had to happen, and it did happen. So that's the first piece I want to talk about in the Old Testament, um, predictive prophecy. The other piece I want to talk about is the law. And, um, you know, we, we, when we look at the Old Testament, we realize that it instructs us about God, about man, about salvation, about all sorts of things. And, and in fact, you find all the great Bible doctrines in the Old Testament, all of them. Yet, in the Old Testament, you only find a partial revelation. Jesus fulfilled it all in the sense of bringing it to completion by his person, by his teaching, by his work, by his death, by his resurrection. So with regard to the law, I want to reiterate what we've talked about a couple times here on Wednesday nights throughout this year. There's been two times we've talked about this. And so I don't want to belabor it much, but um, when we do look at the types of law in the Old Testament, we, we look at them as three types of laws, right? We look at civil law, ceremonial law, moral law. And before I go any further, I, I do need to point out that no place in the Bible does this specifically delineate those types of laws. You're never going to say... Read the, read the books of Moses, for example, and, and say, okay, here are the ceremonial laws. Now, 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 here are the civil laws. You don't see that. We get it from deduction, and that's okay, right? Deduction is valid. Deduction is part of the scientific method, right? All of you have helped your kids with science projects, right? Scientific methods, you, you make observations, come up with a hypothesis, experiments to confirm your hypotheses. It, deduction is, is, is a valid means of, of observing things, and that's how we come up with these three types of, of um, laws. It's by studying or observing the law, and then we, we, we deduce it. So, real quickly, three types. The first is civil law, 
And civil law refers to the notion of, uh, or, or, or to the Jewish nation, how the Jewish nation was to mete out justice, right, in the same manner as which any nation has laws of the land. The United States has laws of the lands, all, all nations do. And um, we find even by the time of Jesus' ministry that Roman civil law had superseded Jewish civil law pretty much. Although, you know, if, if you read the account of um, the Passion Week, you know, Jesus' arrest and what happened that night, or if you look in the book of Acts, you understand that the Sanhedrin and the high priest still had some, some level civil law that was granted them by, by the Romans. But um, as citizens of the United States, we follow our nation's civil laws regarding crime and punishment, the settlement of disputes, those kind of things, not the civil laws of the nation of Israel. Um, however, before I move on, I do want to point out that, that those civil laws of Israel have impacted certainly Western civilization, including the United States. So much of our laws have been influenced um, by these civil laws that come from the Jewish nation. The, the next type is ceremonial law. With all their meaningful rituals and regulations, um, these were intended to represent principles and were the utmost importance to God's people. They really were. And, and some of these laws actually set these people apart, set them apart from the rest of the nations. Um, notions of holiness, um, sacrifice, the need of the shedding of innocent blood for redemption of sin, ideas of the priesthood, um, Things like this look forward to a day when God would send a Messiah. The ceremonial law pointed to Jesus. And the climax was Jesus' death on a cross in which the whole ceremonial system of the Old Testament, both priesthood and the sacrifice, found its perfect fulfillment. And then the ceremonies ceased. I want you to think about this statement that Calvin made regarding, John Calvin, re, re, regarding um, these ceremonies. It was only the use of them that was abolished, for their meaning was more fully confirmed, even more fully confirmed. Think about that, because that speaks to this notion of Christ fulfilling the law, not abolishing it. The ceremonies were no longer necessary. They had pointed to Christ, and now he had come, right? This is what Paul told the Colossians. This is in Colossians chapter 2. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, yeah, it's found in Christ. Praise God. And the writer of Hebrews wrote this. This is Hebrews 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. See, Christ was the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. And this thing that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the Christ sacrifice was the fulfillment of those sacrifices that took place every year. Every year, every year, every year they didn't bring salvation, right? Every year they had to be repeated. And then there were all these other little sacrifices. This happens and take this and this to the priest. If this happens, take this to the priest. There were all these things, right? Christ fulfilled them all. No more sacrifices were needed. 
And the last thing, the, the, the third one, I'm sorry, to, I didn't want to belabor those, but the third one was the moral law. Third type of law is moral law. Basically, right and wrong. Moral law is based on the character of God. It extends from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It was wrong to steal in the Old Testament. It's wrong to steal in the New Testament as well. It's still wrong to steal. Jesus' purpose was not to change the moral law. And certainly it wasn't to annul it, but to reveal, listen to this, the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. Jesus' approach to the moral law was not a superficial one. It was not a superficial interpretation, but the true, the true interpretation of this law. And as we will see in a few minutes, it involved more than just adhering to the letter of the law. Let's quickly go to the next, the next verse, verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet was the Yod. The Yod was the smallest letter. And this, this phrase that in the NIV is interpreted, um, the least stroke of a pen, is similar to what I think today we would call a serif. Right? You know, the serif is little, little lines on the ends of letters. Um, the difference is serifs for us are just, dec- they're just ornamental, right? But it, these actually meant something. They could change the, the word by how they were used with a combination of letters. Um, but Jesus is very clear. Jesus is saying the law will not pass away, not even the littlest part of it. It's not going to pass away until heaven and earth also pass away. And at that point, everything's accomplished, all is accomplished. So he stresses his point that the law is not being abolished. In fact, just the opposite of being abolished is being fulfilled. There is a, a quote that an Anglican priest back in the 1800s said. This guy's name is Bishop John Ryle. He said, the Old Testament is the gospel in a bud. The New Testament is the gospel full flower. Isn't that cool? I know it's not scripture, but man, I see that mental image. I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. See, the law will not pass away in this age. It won't. Rather, it comes to fruition, to fullness in this age. Kind of like that flower that, you know, the Bishop Ryle talks about. So that's Christ and his relationship with the Old Testament and with the law. Now let's talk about the Christian or the disciple, because this is where Jesus now turns the discussion after those first two verses. He's going to turn the discussion now to, to us and how we are to respond. Verse 19 says this, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is now shifting his focus from himself to the followers. And he says, if anyone minimizes, just minimizes one of these commands and teaches others likewise, there's going to be a consequence. And that consequence is you're going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to point out, he is not talking about heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven. That is not the same as heaven. 
the kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God. Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers that sometimes, instead of saying kingdom of God, he says kingdom of heaven. And a lot of commentators think that that's because, again, of his Jewish audience. Perhaps they received that differently. Um, But I want to be clear, he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the kingdom. And, And Jesus, you know, one thing Jesus really does in the Sermon on the Mount is introduce this concept of kingdom living. And you've heard Pastor Mark teach about kingdom living for years. And this is when Jesus really starts unpacking that in front of the the multitudes. So, I think the question that's kind of tricky here is, what are these commandments that Jesus is talking about? Does that mean we are bound to all the Mosaic law and the ceremonial things and the, the very minute things? You know, the rabbis used to say that the least commandment in the law was the commandment that said if you find a nest with either eggs or or little chicks and you find the mother bird, you can take the eggs and the the little birds, but you can't take the mother. It's in the Bible. And and pharisaical, or I'm sorry, rabbinical belief was that that was the least of the commandments. I, I, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, Jesus is shifting gears, I believe, and he's instead referring to these, these commandments, the ones he is about to give. Now, let me tell you one reason I, I, I kind of think that. There's a lot of similarity to, to Jesus' verbiage here, to the way he talks, also recorded by Matthew, in the 16th chapter when he's talking to Peter. And in Matthew 16, 18, a lot of you have heard this verse. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, when we read that scripture, we understand that he is not saying that he is going to build his church on a man. He's not building his church on Peter. What he's doing is building himself, building the church on himself. And this testimony that Peter said two verses earlier, where he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what he's building his church on. And when he uses this, these terms, you know, he's, he's, he's making a play on words with the rock. Peter, in Greek, is Petros, um, Cephas in Aramaic, but it means rock. So he calls him Petros, and I tell you that you are Petros, and on this rock, Petra, it's a different word, on this rock, Petra, referring to himself and the fact that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in the same manner, this this section that we are reading here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus first makes a statement about the law, and it's not going to pass. And then he follows it with the word, therefore, since the law doesn't pass. Let's talk about these commandments. If anyone disallows these commandments and teaches others to do the same, and he's talking about what he's about to say, these. And note that these is the plural version of this, which is what Jesus used talking about Peter on this rock. I mean, it appears to be a similar statement in both structure and in intent. And, and, and one, more, one more thing to consider, if it, as, uh, I know some of you are thinking, I don't know if I agree with you, Dan, but something else I want you to consider. How does Matthew wrap up 
his gospel. The last thing that Jesus says, what does he say? He's talking about go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then he says in Matthew 28, 20, and teaching them to obey everything, I've commanded you. Those are the commandments, he's saying. Teach this. This is the kingdom. Teach these. And don't, don't say you don't have to obey this one or that one. or No. Teach them these commandments that I've taught you. And before we move on for this verse, um, I want you to think about this. What do you think about the concept that there can be different levels of commandments? Right? Because Jesus is talking about the least of these commandments. So what do we make of that? Well, I, I think if we look in, further in the Gospels, we realize that there are some aspects of the law that are weightier than others. Remember, Jesus um, accused the scribes and the Pharisees later in Matthew in the 23rd chapter of paying tithe even on their spices. Yeah, on mint and dill and cumin. You even pay tithe on your spices. But he says you neglect the weightier things or the more important things in the law. And what are they? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. So he seemed to be of the opinion that there were some laws that were more important and weightier than the other. In fact, it's recorded in, in, in all the Gospels that Jesus was actually asked, what's the greatest? And what did he say? Not only did he say what the greatest commandment is, he said, I'll give you one more. I'll tell you what the second greatest one is. He gave them twice what they asked for. So, um, apparently there are great commandments. There are least commandments. There are commandments of different degree. Um, and yet, this is what James says. In the second chapter of James, James says... Whoever keeps the whole, whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Yeah. The point is, some commandments may be greater than others, lesser than others. They're all required. They are. They're all required. And, you know, even when Jesus criticized, you know, the Pharisees for, 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 for giving the tithe of their, their spices, you know, and neglecting these other things... Um, he told them, keep doing that, keep giving a tithe of everything, and add, add these important things to it. It wasn't an either-or thing, just it, both. So finally, let's look at the last verse, this 20th verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the crux of the matter. This is where he's going with this right here. Um, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were, in a sense, known for their righteousness. They were famous for their righteousness. They were the teachers. They were the Pharisees. They were the good guys, right? They were all about keeping the law. They calculated that the law contained 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions. That's 613 all together, and they aspired to keep every single one of them. That was their goal, keep every one of those 613. How then, tell me this, how then could you have a righteousness that exceeded theirs and thus enter the kingdom of heaven? Yeah? Well, here's how. 
Christian righteousness must exceed Pharisaic righteousness in kind, not in degree. It's not a matter of more righteousness, right? It's not a, it's not a righteousness that obeys more commandments than what the Pharisees and, and the scribes do, because they're going to try to do all 16 that they have recorded, right? It's a totally different kind of righteousness. The fulfillment of righteousness found in the law is what we're talking about. Righteousness 2.0. Last release. No more. See, Paul understood that this righteousness of the Pharisees wasn't enough. Paul got it. It says in Philippians, this is when he was in prison, he writes this letter, and first time he was in prison. Third chapter, and he says this, If somebody else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, yeah, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Yeah, that was Paul. And then, then let's listen to what he says. But whatever gains... But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Yeah, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Yeah, Paul got it. He did. He was a faultless Pharisee, yet after meeting Jesus, he considered his righteousness, all of that stuff, garbage, all this that he could brag on. And he could rightfully brag on, too. None of it was a lie. I'm sure it was all true. Garbage. He didn't want a righteousness that comes from the law. He wanted that which is through faith in Christ and comes from God. Christian righteousness, then, must be a righteousness of the heart. It's deeper than simply keeping a list of commandments. We must keep not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And this deep righteousness of the heart, listen, it's only possible to those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated and now lives within. Can't do it on your own. This type of righteousness is evidence of new birth, and no one enters the kingdom without being born again, do they? No. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus, right? John 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, there it is again. I love it. You know, it stands out to me now every time I see it. This authority that he talks about. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, that's ludicrous, right? And Jesus said, truly, truly, yeah, I say to you, unless one is born of, of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, so what? It's nice, Dan, so what? What do we take home tonight? When, as you leave tonight, I want you to consider two things. 
Number one, and I could scream this, but I won't because I've got a microphone. Don't throw out the Old Testament. Okay? And I say that because it can be a tendency for Christians to just study the New Testament. Just get focused on the new. And, you know, we'd miss so much. If we did that, we would miss so much. Jesus didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. In 2 Timothy, Paul's last writing before he died, he says to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's all good. All of it's good. You know, Paul had the Old Testament you think Paul is pulling out the scripture and there was one of his letters he was reading? No, I don't think so. He primarily had the Old Testament. And listen to what Jesus said. And this is a verse that I love. I really love this verse. This is Matthew 13, 52. Think about this. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law, right? These people he was talking about in Sermon on the Mount, who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven... It's like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. It's not an either or. It's not, get this image in your mind of this disciple in the kingdom of heaven, and yet he's a teacher of the law, and he's got treasures. Old Testament treasures, New Testament treasures, kingdom of God treasures, the law treasures. It's, it's, it's remarkable. The Old Testament is an amazing gift to us, and David understood that. I encourage you, if, just if you need encouragement in this area, reread Psalm 119. David loved the law. He loved God's law. He, it wasn't a drudgery. You know, sometimes I, I think we've got to be careful how we, how we encourage one another to read Scripture because it's not drudgery. It, it, it wasn't like a teenager doing his algebra homework, right? No, David loved it. He delighted in it. He delighted in it. And he meditated on it day and night. He got it. And I want us to get it as well. I want us as disciples of the kingdom to also be students of the law and to love them both and to get treasures old and treasures new. And number two for you to take home tonight, don't try to live by just the letter of the law. See, that, that, that's really what the Pharisees and the, and the teachers were doing, what Jesus was addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. And our righteousness has to exceed theirs, not by degree, but it's got to be a different kind of righteousness. It's got to be one that's deeper. And I want to repeat, repeat something. You know, a couple weeks ago, um, I spoke on the sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart. And I made this statement, and I want to remind you of it tonight. Jesus didn't come to teach us how to live righteously. He came to make us righteous. And righteous people live righteously. Yeah. Something else righteous people do, they're built to last. Praise God. God's promises are good. So, as we look to, to the next week, um, as we continue this series... There was one more reason that Jesus went there in his sermon, started talking about 
don't think I'm abolishing the law. I'm fulfilling it. There's, there's another reason I think he, he brought this whole thing up. And that is the, next, the, the rest of chapter 5, as we're going to study for the next couple weeks, is an application of these principles. There are six parallel paragraphs that illustrate what we've talked about, and each contains a contrast or an antithesis. And this is the formula. You have heard it said, but I say to you, and Jesus does that six times, and we're going to study those now in the next few weeks. What are those things he said? And, and as we go down that road, I want you to think about something. This is something I hadn't realized. I just never picked up on. But in Matthew chapter 4, you know, we read about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and, and he's out in the wilderness, and it lists three of the temptations that, that the devil um, tempted him with. And each time, remember how Jesus responded? He responded with Scripture. But what did he say? It is written. And I want you to think about this distinction. As Jesus continues the Sermon on the Mount, we, we continue this the next few weeks, he doesn't say to them, it is written, but he says, you have heard, but. And he's going to bring truth to it. It's going to be good. Um, let's all stand and go to the Lord in prayer before we dismiss tonight. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. Lord, we thank you that your entire word, Lord, is, is such a treasure. As Jesus said, treasures old and treasures new. And God, you have blessed us that we are alive in this time of history where, Lord, we can, we, we, we can receive the salvation that's been already bought for us by your Son and, and be filled with his Holy Spirit, Lord, and, and led by your Spirit and, and see the fulfillment of the law. God, not just the superficial obedience to rules, but God, there's such a richness to it, Lord. And I pray that you would continue to help us to get it, Lord. God, this kingdom, this new kingdom that Jesus is describing in this Sermon on the Mount, it's glorious. God, it's just glorious. And help us to marvel in it, help us to delight in it, and help us find the riches in your word, Lord. Thank you for your blessings now. Go with us as we leave tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everybody. Grace and peace.